Hey, Reddit Church. Good morning. What a privilege we have to continue our series on the greatest hits. Today we're at Psalm 32. And the title of the message is The Grace of Forgiveness. For the kids this morning, our key word is sin and forgiveness. Sin and forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for an opportunity to look into your word, that we may grow and know you more. God, I pray, Lord, that your spirit be working in us at home as we hear this message, in our hearts as we believe. You give us grace to believe this, these messages, this truth. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to me personally and that we would grow to reflect your glory all the more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My friends, as you contemplate and think about life, in many ways it could be compared to a marathon. Life is a, a long race, decades for most people. And in this life there are, are many challenges, many difficulties, and many times we'll hit bumps in the road. And other times you may hit a detour or a slowdown or even a stop. And at times, we'll find that sin will hold us back, and it, it will cause problems. We know the end goal of the Christian life is to finish well, and that our God, and our Father, and our Master and Maker would say well done to us. But in order for us, in order for the Lord to say well done for us one day, we need to run well. And so I want to begin with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. The author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily clings to us or clings closely. So let us run with endurance, the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author, founder, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. My friends, I want you to know that sin is serious. It could send you to hell as a consequence. It could destroy and eat away at your soul. It definitely messes our relationship up with God in our spiritual life and with others around us. What is the sin that so the so that clings that clings so closely? I remember a time when I was a kid, I was running around outside and I think I was playing chase and I was trying to get away from some people. And so I ran that way and I didn't see this, but I ran into a whole bunch of spider webs. And the spider webs got into my face, on my eyes, on my ears, and my hair. And it was just all over the place. I was like, this is yucky. I, I didn't see the spider webs, but I definitely felt how it so clean closely. And it did so quickly. And so sin can be like that. It can get all over the place and mess things up. And I, I'm just a human. And, and I, I need to understand that these webs were designed for smaller bugs or flies or bees. And I remember looking around the forest and I saw a bee go flying into a web. And the spider jumped on it so quickly. The bees is trying to move and get out and the, the webbings is all over him and the spider quickly jumped on and spun a bigger web and more webbing and the bee, guess what, could not get out. You can see it move and squirm and flap its wing and after a while it was not flapping its wings anymore. Why? Because the webbing clinged so closely to this bee. Likewise, sin does the same in our lives, in our hearts. What are some of the sins that entangle you? 
that are entangling you right now, that are hindering your spiritual life big time and causing a major muck, a major problem. There are at least four types of categories of sin that could be causing some problems, some major spiritual problems. And the first type are sins of commission that entangle us when we break God's law intentionally. When we defy God by breaking his holy standard through cheating or lying or stealing or disobeying or committing adultery and we're experiencing porn yet again and again. We have bad habits that have crept into our life, addictions, we're dishonest. All this can serve to entangle your life with sin. And then to deal with the sin, you often find yourself sinning even more and more to either cover it up or to indulge yourself in sin yet more. And there's also the sins of omission. It's the sin of neglect. This could be failing to, to, to welcome somebody, to exercise hospitality, it's failing to pray, failing to love, failing to take communion, communion in the right way, which we have an opportunity today, very soon. Are you going to take it in a worthy manner? Failure to wake up for service. Failure to, to, to witness. These are all sins of omission. Failure to show and share the gospel. Failing to discipline your kids. Failing to lead one's family. Failure, failure to get to work on time. How, <coughs> the third category would be sins of attitude. This would be like anger, bitterness, unbelief, grumpiness, apathetic, laziness being hypercritical or often very temperamental and, and moody, grumpy. And then there's sins of, of intent. This is like lusting, whether for a woman or, or for something would be coveting. It's to desire what you cannot have. And so you, you lust over there's a sin of intent. All these serve as as sins that entangle and bog down our life and hinders us from running this race. I, I believe when this sin gets so bad, you stop reading God's word. You don't care about church. You don't care about Syrian because you're more and more entangled in this sin. And some of these sins maybe have been with you for a while, months, years, maybe even decades. And you see that it's not going away. It's become a serious addiction, a serious problem. You are enslaved to sin. It's become a foothold and it's probably possibly become a stronghold in your life. And you're not going to get out of it unless you receive help. So today we're going to learn um, from an expert, an expert in sin and grace. David was a man who who committed who who lusted, who committed adultery, possibly rape with Bathsheba, definitely took advantage of her. And then to cover it up, he lied, he made a cover up plan and was involved with murder. It wasn't and, and David was haunted by the sin day and night, and we'll look at that more. And he is haunted for about a year until God sent Nathan to rebuke him. And so as we look at Psalm 32, we, want, we, we understand it was written from David, no doubt. He was the expert in sin and grace. Psalm 32 talks about David's struggle with sin and how he overcame sin with grace and forgiveness and how he experienced God's blessedness. The footnote Psalm 51 talks about the same situation, but it's the perspective of David after he has confessed his sin. And this is more within the struggle of the sin and overcoming it and how to overcome sin, how to fight sin. And so this morning, we're going to look at two perspectives from Psalm 32 so that we can deal with sin that so easily entangles us 
by the grace of forgiveness in order that we might run the race, run the, ways, the race in such a way to win the prize that the Lord may say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Some of us are so entangled in sin, it's, it's messing up life right now. It's messing up work, your marriage, how you relate to your kids. It's messing up even the way you function in the life uh, of your local church. And my hope and prayer is that God would call for a breakthrough, that he would release you and free you from this bondage, that you would see sin for all that it is, and that you would see the Savior so much greater, so much better, to help free you from the sin. So, the two perspectives that we're going to look at are found in Psalm 32 verses 1 through 7. And the first perspective is to realize sin as seen by the sinner. Perspective number two, recognize sin as seen by the Savior. Psalm 32, 8 through 11. So let's start with the first perspective. Realize sin as seen by the sinner. Since we are currently in the scope of human history in the church age, I'm going to preach this Old Testament passage in its context, but I will bounce back and forth because we are in the church age and preach it in light of the gospel, in light of the cross, so that it's a distinctly Christian message, not just an Old Testament Jewish message, because we are on this side of the cross. The first thing I want you to notice is Psalm 32 verses 1 to 2. And it's this, blessed are those who realize the gospel. This is so important. We as <clears throat> our sinful hearts are an idol-making factory that is bent and desires and listens to the world and listens to our sinful flesh and desires to be happy by indulging into sin. The gospel, on the other hand, said it's blessed. It is happy to be made right with God. It's, it's happy and blessed to, be, to know that you're right with God and to receive the Holy Spirit and have the abiding, joy-filling, grace-filling spirit abiding in our hearts internally. This is not a blessedness or a happiness based on circumstances or things going your way. The gospel says the blessed and happy person is the one who mourns over sin. We see that in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. We looked at that earlier this year as a church. So, Psalm 32 verse 1 and 2 says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is man is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and his spirit there is no deceit so in these two verses we have four aspects of sin that display the condition of our heart the way we sin and how we offend a holy and righteous and perfect god so the first sin we see in this passage is a sin of defiance. If you lock your minds and eyes on the word transgression, this is a sin of rebellion, is to revolt against authority, specifically God as the ultimate authority, but the authorities that God has placed in our life is to break God's holy law, is to cross over and overstep his law. It's the, it's the idea of like violating a, a stop sign. Or, or a speed limit. You violated God's law. Violated his Ten Commandments. The second is the sin of defect. The word sin itself means to miss the mark. To fall short of God's holy standard. It's a failure to meet and to be perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. It's to fall short of God's glory. In fact, we know we're not perfect, and we fall way short of God's glory. The third one is the sin of distortion. This is iniquity. It's a basic idea of perversion. <clears throat> the root word is to be bent or crooked or twisted or, or warped. 
is to take God's creative design for whatever aspect of this life and to twist it and to make it to be something else. In these days, we take sex, which is meant for a man and a woman in marriage, and we exploit it in so many ways that God did not ever design it for outside of marriage and not with your spouse. We pervert it and twist it to be something totally different. And this is called distortion. And better yet to understand it's perversion. There's also the sin of deception. It talks, this comes from the idea of deceit. It <laughs> speaks of impure motives, insincerity. It's, there's a cunningness to it. It's basically how Satan operates as he talks to Adam and Eve or even as he talked to Jesus in the wilderness or in the desert. There's just a lot of insincerity and manipulation. And some of us function this way. We're just constantly insincere with each other, with your boss, with your parents, with, with your church leaders. And all four of these sins were in play in so many ways in David's life as he related to Bathsheba and, mur and the murder of Uriah and the other people around him. Likewise, we, we have sinned, according to this definition, every one of us, over and over and over. And every time we sin, it's like taking your hand and slapping it in God's face. Every sin we commit is an insult to God. It's like saying to God, I'm going to stick out my lower lip and say, mm, I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to treasure you. I'm going to treasure the things of this world. It's like, mm, I'm not going to love others. I'm not going to pray for others. I'm not going to tell others about Jesus. I'm not going to express kindness. I'm not going to welcome others. I'm not going to embrace others. I'm not going to reflect your glory. I just want to be concerned with my own glory. That's the lower lip to God saying, no, of defiance. Yeah, parents, we've seen our kids do that. And that's what we do to God. When we defy him in our sins. Because we see how our kids do it to us. We are all guilty before a holy God. Because we are guilty, we, we, we are dead in our trespasses. And we eventually will be doomed without the good news and the grace of God. But we also see in this passage in verse 1 again. David experienced God's blessing, joy, and happiness through the gospel. Or the grace of God in the Old Testament. He definitely received grace without a doubt. David's transgressions were forgiven. That's how he became blessed. His sins were lifted away. Taken up. Pardoned. Wiped out. Sort of like some of us may have student loans. And somehow you got it wiped out. God, when he forgives you of his sin, he pardons our spiritual bankruptcy our spiritual debt before him just as Bunyan's pilgrim came at length with his back breaking the load of sin on him to the cross and suddenly felt the burden roll away the guilt and the burden removed that is forgiveness David's sin, we see, was covered. It was made hidden and invisible. After he confessed his sins, after he got right with God, he experienced God's grace of his sin being blotted out, removed permanently and eternally. In the Old Testament, the, lamb, the blood of the Lamb of God was used to cover the sins. Spiritually, likewise, the blood of Christ covers our sins. He has paid for it all. He has toned for our sins. In this way, He forgives and removes our sins. And God will never bring it up or hold it up against you. In God's court of law, from the perspective that God is judge. He's a just and righteous judge. And so when you break His law, you expect judgment and condemnation. But God is merciful. And by faith in His Son... He covers it and blots it out. And if you've experienced that, 
but yet you still struggle with sin, we can say to Jesus, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for blotting it out. This passage was so significant. Paul, in Romans chapter, five, chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, refers back to this very specific passage in Psalm 32 to make his point of justification. So we are going to cross-reference this passage to Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. It says here, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, and believes in Jesus Christ who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous, who God counts righteousness apart from works. You cannot earn perfection. You can't earn salvation. It comes through belief and faith. And if you trust in the Lord, he counts you as righteous. By Christ's work, Christ's merit, Christ's perfect record, and his shed blood on the cross. In verse 7, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That's just what we saw in verse 1 of Psalm 32. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is in the context of Romans 4 and justification by faith. Happy and blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven and covered. Can we say amen? Amen. That is such good news to know that God would cover and forgive our sins. Prior to that, we live in fear and dread and trouble because we know we are doomed if our sins are not forgiven before a holy God. David <coughs> experienced and realized the effects of sin in his life before he repented from his sin. David tried to hide his sin like Adam and Eve who tried to cover it with little fig leaves. David tried to hover, cover his sin in a myriad of ways. He tried to get others to take his sin. He tried to take he tried to get others to take the fall for him. But he suffered cuz he tried to cover it up and this is what happened in verse 3. He says for when I kept silent, when he didn't tell others, when he didn't seek forgiveness from others, when he didn't go to God himself, he says, my, my bones wasted away. In other words, his bones felt older, rickety, like an old, old man. Yeah, I'm feeling like that sometime these days. And I'm sure it'll get worse once I hit, you know, my 70s and 80s. But this is what David was feeling. His bones wasting away. And though my groaning all day long, he's, this is his, his suffering of pain. These are cries of anguish. David's body was taken a soul because of his spiritual life. It affected his physical life. I believe that he is depressed. I believe that David views that his sin is so deep and so ugly that he believes that God's grace and love is not deep enough to forgive him. So what David does is this, he keeps silent. He's ashamed to talk to God about it. He's ashamed to talk to others about it. And so he's cut off communication from the one that can help him the most, God. And he's cut off communication from others. And so he's just holding it in and it's literally eating him alive to the point that he is silent. Verse 4, for day and night, God, David says, your hand was heavy upon me. David felt the Lord's hand upon him day and night when he was awake and when he headed to bed. We see the, the, <clears throat> this figure of speech, this antimorphism of the Lord's hand on David. And it's functioning in a negative way or a good way to, to help him to realize his sin. Other times we see this 
term used that God, in the Old Testament, God has his hand upon someone to strengthen them. In this case, it was, help, it was there to help David become more aware of his sin because it says right here, your hand was heavy upon me. He felt the Lord prodding at him and working in him and moving in him. It was just there, day and night. David knew without a doubt what, what to do and what the Lord was doing. But David went on in silent and sin and foolishness, really. And he says, My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. This is the idea of to be sucked dry, to be sucked of his life vitality, his life juices. I just want to stop and ask you this question and just put it in park right now. Have you ever felt like this? Your sin eating you up? Yourself groaning? Your live juices being sucked away? And you find yourself kind of constantly tired? Is this you? Have you experienced it in the past? Are you experiencing it now? Do you know someone else who's experiencing this? My hope is that God has given you a consciousness and this is there to reveal the sin to you and to woo and show your need for the Savior. Some of us, our sin has been around for so long and we haven't done anything with it. You're experiencing something far worse. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 to 2, it's there's a, there's a, a concept of a, a conscious that is seared. Your consciousness is so worn out because your your ongoing sin that your conscience is not working correctly. Back in the day, I was learning to play guitar and I would play every day. I wasn't that good and didn't have much rhythm, but I did go through the experience of my conscious my my. My, my fingers hurting and calluses developing and the t calluses developed and they fell off and the skin got stronger and stronger and the nerves got used to it. What happened is in one sense my, my nerve endings were being seared. They're becoming callous and they lost sensitivity. And this could be some of you. We have lost sensitivity to God. You find yourself in a very bad place with little sensitivity to sin. Now in verse 5 is, is a turning point, realizing that the only way to be pardoned and set free is by genuine and sincere confession of sin. We're going to look at this very, very deeply. This is such an important truth. David comes to a point where he is humbled, he's broken, he's starting to recognize and realize the sinfulness of sin in his life before a holy and just God. And now he's ready to own up to his sins specifically in the way he has offended a holy God in four different ways, in multiple times, as he confesses his sin directly to God. David says, I acknowledge, I admit, I recognize my sin to you. We're going to parse that later. And I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. He's going to stop hiding. He's going to stop being silent. And you gave and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. David struggled with his sin. He tried to hide from God. He tried to cover it up for over a year. But God did what? He sent Nathan to confront him of his sin. And this confrontation led to David realizing, Oh man, I am so wicked. And I'm so foolish. I was so stubborn. So David confessed his sin. And he received the gift and the grace of forgiveness. So how did this come down? What happened in David's heart? What's the connection between confession and forgiveness. This is part I wrote very precisely and I'll, I'll need to read a little because I don't want to, you to miss the accuracy and the preciseness of God's word cutting you in the right way to minister to you appropriately. Listen carefully. Confession to God is not merely admitting 
our sin as real, but also rejecting our sin as repulsive, the same way God is repulsed by sin. A false confession would be admitting sin and feeling no grief or remorse with a spirit of deceit and recognizing that this sin is present in your life and evil. This is not biblical acknowledgement before God. It's basically saying, hey, I made a mistake, so what? The prerequisite for divine forgiveness is admitting our sin is real and rejecting our sin as repulsive. Every sin we commit is an insult to God and a slap in his face. Could you imagine every time we sin, this arm came out and literally whapped God's in the face? That's what we do every time we sin. To, to understand the dynamics of confession and forgiveness, I, I need to set things up in this picture, in this scenario, so you could see it and feel it. When two people offer you contrary advice for how to live and stake their character on the wisdom of their counsel and you choose to follow one and not the other, guess what happens when you do that? You defame the other's character. It is inevitable and that is what we do to God every time when we sin instead of following his way. There's a defaming of character. So what is forgiveness? Understand the aim of forgiveness is to restore damaged relationship with God and with others. God's aim is to bring all people in harmony. That's the point of the cross and redemption and fellowship and union with him. Some may ask, why can't God just forgive everyone? I want you to know, he could, but it still leaves a problem. God could disregard such continued sin and insult for eternity. But for what? That wouldn't bring about union with his people. And so, neither his glory nor their happiness would be achieved. Only the perpetual perpetuation of sin and defense defamation 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 of God's character and so there'd be no point in that so what is God's aim for forgiveness John Piper is so insightful he's more smarter and deeper than me and this is this great food for the soul he says this the only way for God to reach the goal of glorifying his name and making his people happy is not to overlook sin, but to change, but to transform, but to redeem sinners. That is what God is doing with David. And that's what he is doing through Christ with us who believe. And this is why there is a prerequisite for forgiveness. John Piper takes it a little deeper and he just says and points out the beauty and the amazing grace found in forgiveness. And he says this, Oh, that we might cherish our forgiveness more. But I am convinced that until we fear sin and its consequences more keenly, we will not prize our pardon very highly. To the degree which we feel sweet gratitude for being forgiven is, is directly proportionate to the degree that the alternate of being forgiven strikes dread to into our hearts. The horror of sin and the fearfulness of hell are the only drawbacks that will let forgiveness shine for the infinite blessing that it really is. If we don't see the gigantic tidal wave of God's wrath rushing toward the little raft of our sin, then we won't kiss the feet of the helicopter pilot who plucks us out of the ocean just in time. 
But until that time, ponder the value of your eternal pardon. Compare the affection you feel for things and people in this world with the affection you feel for Jesus and for being forgiven through his death. And if you find that your heart leaps up more vigorously for anything else than it does for the forgiveness of God, repent. Yes, repentance is for two purposes. One, to repent the first time to receive God's justifying final work. But we also are called to live life of, of repentance and ongoing forgiveness relationally. So we have been adopted by grace, but we are called to live in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. David's sin was deep and his stain was deep too. But guess what? God's grace was deeper and his forgiveness was yet still deeper. David confessed, confessed his sin and was forgiven before God. My question for you, is there sin? Sin that you're aware of that's unforgiven? relationships are still broken, whether with you or God or both or other people. Let's realize the path of grace, of the grace of forgiveness over sin to live victoriously. God doesn't just forgive us once and done. He wants to disciple you. He wants to equip you. He wants to mature you. And so there's four marks of someone who's growing in grace and making progress. And this is what the church is about too. God has saved us. Now, as a church, we are to disciple each other and equip each other for every good work that we may grow. That we might be not, that we won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That we won't be tossed to and fro by every little trial that comes our way. That we would grow and be equipped. And I do want to throw a plug. That there are people in certain places that are just so hungry for God. They'll sit and listen to preaching for hours upon hours. And it's not sometimes not even the greatest preaching. But it's the only truth they can get. And so they get up early, they walk far to listen, to learn. I encourage you to make available every opportunity to learn and grow. We have an opportunity, the Lord has blessed us with a solid intern, our pastoral assistant, who loves Jesus a lot. And you can see that in him and his wife. And he wants us to, to, he wants to teach us the Old Testament, an area where I would say much of today's church is lacking. And so I just want to give you four marks of why this is so important, how God wants to disciple David back into health so he doesn't go back into his plight, into his problems, into his entangling of sin. Realize Mark 1, the power of prayer. In Psalm 32, verse 6, 5, David receives instruction from God. He says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer. The godly person offers prayer. He talks to God. He communicates with God. When you have sin, there's a temptation to hide your sin like what David did. But may your instinct be ever more filled with grace and truth and hope to run to God when you are tempted to sin and attempted to to ignore the presence of God in your life that is really beckoning you to, to pray and to submit your life to Him. But when godliness, or actually when ungodliness, comes in like darkness into your mind and heart, and when you avoid holiness, you may succumb to temptation. But my hope is that you would recognize the power you have to pray, to stop and pray when temptation comes in. And to call out to God like an SOS. God, I need your strength. I need your help. Mark number two, the power of position. Understand that you have an amazing position with God. In the New Testament, we are now children of God. Sons and daughters. Full access to God himself. In the Old Testament, we didn't have quite the same relationship. But it looks like this. As David directs his prayer to you in verses 6 and 7 here. To you at a time when you may be found. He's praying to God from a position of drawing near to God. 
Surely in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. See, in the New Testament, we are in Christ. We have a union with Christ. That's our position. In the Old Testament, we can draw near to God. This is what David did. He drew near to God where he could find safety and protection with God himself from the great waters. So, David is able to find a hiding place with God, with His truth, with His grace, with His Spirit, when life's trials and temptation comes. Yes, Satan wants to bring trials in your life to put you down and take you down. God brings the same trials from a different perspective and hope to strengthen you, that he, you would grow in these trials. So David is no longer running from God. Now he is hiding in God's truth and grace, presence and position and power that God extends to David. Realize Mark number three, power of perseverance. In verse seven, David looked to God to persevere him, preserve, to preserve him from trouble. David knew that God was his strength. And by faith, God would help him to persevere and yes I believe in the perseverance of the saints this is biblical I looked at it, you can find 30 to 40 verses of how God began a good work and he yes he'll be faithful to complete it in us realize mark number four the power of praise David realized that God surrounded him with shouts of deliverance God's grace is in operation in him now when it wasn't so much before. David was in darkness. And after he's in confection, he finds himself in the light. <clears throat> David's song sank with sin. But after he was forgiven, David's heart is now filled with shouts of deliverance. When Paul and Silas were in jail, the, the gospel consumed them. Their lives were centered on the gospel. And so when they're in jail, they didn't say, oh, poor old me. No, they looked to God. They sang praises to him. They prayed and they rejoiced. And so many things happened. They're released from their shackle. The prison doors are open. And they had the best gospel opportunity to minister to the jailer. My friends, the gospel is always transformative. I am concerned for gospel-like agendas that are more cause-driven than Christ-driven, that are more motivated by human pride than humble service to God. And you see it in this distinctive. Does the transformer power of God exist? Where there is joy and shouts of praise, or is, is there a cause filled with more anger and more resentment and really doesn't display the transformed power of God. Something other than Jesus is residing in that heart, residing in that motivation. And that's worthy to be checked before the cross and before communion today. Lastly, perspective number two, recognize sin as seen by the Savior. These last few verses is really God instructing David, equipping him so that he won't regress. And I don't normally do this, but I'm gonna put in the negative because I believe it speaks well and helps you to understand what is being talked about here. So, the first one is don't be unteachable. Psalm 32 verse 8, God says, I will instruct you and teach you. He's saying this to David, I will instruct you and teach you because what? You weren't instructed and taught well enough to the, <coughs> to the point you gave in to sin. He says, next time around, I want to counsel you with my eye upon you. That everywhere you go, David, that you remember that my eye is upon you for your good and my glory. My friends, it is foolishness to be unteachable. Sometimes I think when Christians go through the Christian life longer and longer, they become more and more unteachable. And that is not a good place to be. 
It says that you are plateaued, that you are are content in, in coasting, and you're not really growing and maturing in Christ. You have said, I just want to be Peter Pan. I don't want to grow up. I just want to be a Toys R Us kid forever. And guess what? My bet is that you're still struggling with the same sins over and over and over and over. And they have entangled into your life. The second one is don't be stubborn. In verse 9, God says, don't be like a horse. Don't be like a mule. Horses and mule are, are stubborn. They're without understanding. They, they require a, a bit or a bridle so that you can curb them. And so my, my question for you, are you like this animal? Are you stubborn like these animals as you relate to God? Charles Spurgeon says this, God does not want a bit or want to bit or bridle you. He wants to guide you with his eye. If you refuse this gentle guidance, then it will come stronger from a bridle or a bit. If one severe trial does not sanctify you, expect another more rigorous god <laughs> god has given us these trials for our good i think we have probably experienced the pandemic and many other type of trials and our faith has been tested and hopefully it's getting stronger but if it's not and we're failing to test guess what god will give you more trials i believe this pandemic is a trial for our whole nation to submit ourselves to god to honor him according to his truth. And it will reveal itself in the way we live, in the, what type of church we are, even how you vote. Or don't vote. But if you're not going to get it, God will bring trial after trial after trial. I, my belief, if we don't get it this time, God's going to bring a pandemic again. And again and again and it will be worse in fact we know it's going to happen it's just how much more before his return don't be untrusting verse 10 God gives us and wants us to trust him but he says this many are the sorrows of the wicked when you're wicked and you're in your sin and tangles it you have so many sorrows sorrow upon sorrow but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Trust the Lord in the midst of the hurricane. Look and hold on to that anchor when a cat four comes into your life. Or a cat one. Or even a pussycat. Hold on to him. What I've learned more and more, when there's much trial, much duress, we either respond in one of two ways. You either sin to distract yourself and to deal with your pain or you submit yourself to God and enjoy the satisfaction that only He can give. And don't be ungrateful. Verse 11, God commanded David, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We have every reason to be glad because of the gospel. David has every reason to be glad because he was delivered and forgiven. And so the Lord really shouldn't command us, but he does so in case we're hard-hearted. But he says, remember the cross. Be glad in the Lord. When you go home and pray, sing to the Lord. When we come together, my friends, let's sing to the Lord. Yes, there are times that we struggle with distraction. Or, or sin our lives, and so we don't sing. We miss out on the joys of the Lord. And so, I don't know where you are in the race. Some of us may not be in it. Some of us be, may be in it, but we have been bogged down by sin. Some of us are just struggling big time. I want you to know the Lord gives you three amazing gifts. And I can give each one to you to be in the race and to continue to run in the race well. Gift number one. It's the gift of safe faith to be saved. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. My friends, you cannot save yourself. You cannot achieve righteousness on your own. Not perfect righteousness to redeem yourself. Only by the work of Christ on the cross, His perfect life, His perfect work, can you be saved by trusting in Him and putting your faith and surrendering your life to Him. Can you be saved and forgiven of your sins forever? Your sins will be blotted out before God and you've been saved from the penalty of sin. Then guess what? You joined this race. This amazing race. Gift number two is a gift of confession to be forgiven. In 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 through 10, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, we, and if we say we have not sinned, and we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is speaking to a Christian who's struggling with sin, daily sin, and he's, he's urging us to go back to the Father for the grace of forgiveness each day. And so for you, I encourage you to go to the Lord and seek his daily forgiveness, that you might be right with him. There's no point in allowing sin to fester and the webs of sin to cloud your mind and hearts each day and destroy your relationship with Him and others. Lastly, is the gift of confessing in community. This is profound. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 16. It says here, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Some people are sick because of their sin. We saw that in David's life. He was depressed. Some people are mentally sick because of their sin. But here it says, And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Here's the key. Verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. My friends, the Bible says that we are to confess our sins to one another. I think if I were to say something that concerns me most in this church, I, I think there's a sense of pride and arrogance and shame and guilt. And God wants His grace to melt all that. Our community will only grow so much when we are filled with pride. But God wants to heal each one of you. And my prayer for you is that we, you and I, would grow in our confession of sin 